0: Joining us on the program is the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney. And Mr. Kenney has uh, provincial matters to deal with, not only as far as the pandemic is concerned, but he's also undertaken an energy initiative, because eventually, when this all ends, we'll have to restart our economy. Premier, thank you very much for taking the time. And let me start by asking you for your reaction to President Trump's uh, declaration that N95 masks and ventilators should stay in the United States and not come to Canada.
2: It's extremely disappointing, uh, Roy. This uh, is a country that, um, uh, Canada, that has always stood by the United States. Uh, we did so after 9-11. We made a real sacrifice uh, to uh, join with the United States in defending uh, their national security as well as ours. Uh, and we've done that all through our history. You know, it kind of reminded me of the beginning of the Second World War, when Canada was a part of the fight against global fascism, being led by Britain, Uh, And the the Americans sat out the first two and a half years of that war. Not only that, but for much of that time, they wouldn't even supply Canada or Britain with materiel. And uh, this reminds me of that. Now, I obviously hope that um, uh, the president rethinks this and realizes that we are uh, allies together. We've always been together through tough times in history, and we should be through this tough time in history.
0: What can you tell us, Premier, about the uh, conference call with the Prime Minister and the other Premiers? How did that go? How much cooperation is there among you all?
2: Remarkably good cooperation right across the country and across party lines. uh, Politics has all been put aside and regionalism put aside for us to focus uh, together on defeating this invisible enemy of the coronavirus. Uh, I'm actually quite moved by uh, the the sense of, of solidarity uh, on display as we meet as, as premiers and, and with the national government, um, you know Alberta is going through a triple, triple whammy. Not only are we facing a the biggest public health crisis since the Spanish flu 1918, and, and the uh, global coronavirus recession, uh, but on top of that, we're seeing a, a meltdown in our largest industry, Canada's largest industry subsector, if you want the oil and gas sector. Uh, which is responsible for employing about 800,000 Canadians directly and indirectly. And obviously the uh, collapse in energy prices brought on in part by the collapse in demand uh, because of the coronavirus, but also uh, it's been amplified by the Russian-Saudi oil price war. This has very grave implications for uh, the people of Alberta. Uh, It means that the economic downturn the rest of the country is seeing is probably twice as serious in my province. It also means it will take a lot longer for Alberta to recover from this downturn, the likes of which we have not seen since the Great Depression. And I just wanted to say how I've been touched, basically been quite emotionally moved to hear constant expressions of support and solidarity from premiers across the country who understand the unique adversity that Alberta is facing right now.
0: So, uh, and you face this adversity, uh, and an escalating adversity for some period of time. But you've invested or will invest $7.5 billion in Keystone XL from Alberta to Nebraska. You're clearly confident this is a sound investment, that oil prices will rebound, and that the United States, even if it elects a Democrat president, won't be slamming the door on the Keystone routing, with construction then already underway by a good six months before the next president is sworn in. Would you, uh, just for the benefit of all of us, explain to us what exactly your government is doing and and just the rationale behind the move?
2: Sure. Just for those not aware, Keystone XL is a proposed uh, enlargement of a pipeline that's existed between Canada and the U.S. Midwest uh, for many years. Uh, It's been on the books for a decade. Uh, TransCanada Pipelines, now called TC Energy, has already invested $6 billion in it. But it became a political football, and ultimately, under pressure from uh, the green left that's been trying to landlock Canadian energy, uh, President Obama vetoed the project. And since then, uh, President Trump granted that permit but it's been subject to constant legal harassment. The same groups that killed the Northern Gateway Pipeline, killed Energy East, have endlessly delayed the Trans Mountain Pipeline that were standing on train tracks to uh, protest uh, the Coastal Gas Link Project. The same movement, backed by the same foreign funders, have been behind trying to shut down the proposed Keystone XL Pipeline. Well, what we did this week, uh, after eight months of careful negotiations, was to uh, remove the political risk for TC Energy to proceed on the financial side. They they needed, uh, because the capital markets were not prepared to backstop that project, private investors were not going to risk their money in a situation that has become so heavily politicized, partly because of concern that a future U.S. president might repeal the permit to allow it to proceed, and uh, because of the current meltdown in in energy markets. So we needed to step forward. Uh, to with an investment on behalf of the government of Alberta, we're putting in a 1.5 billion dollars as a uh, equity investment with preferred shares this year to begin construction. It started uh, this week, April one, and uh, next year we're offering a, a six billion dollar loan guarantee to help the company finance the rest of the construction. Uh, it is planned to come into uh, operation on uh, April, sorry June of 2023, and will allow us to ship at least 830. Thousand billion, sorry, eight hundred thirty thousand uh, barrels of additional al- Canadian oil to the U.S. Gulf Coast refineries uh, that will, uh, we estimate, uh, generate a net thirty billion dollars in additional revenues uh, for the for Canadian governments. So this is, you're right, there is risk involved in this, but we're sending a message to the green Left sp- foreign-funded special interests that have tried so desperately to landlock our energy and we're sending a message to OPEC, the Saudis and the Russians that are trying to drive North America out of the global energy markets right now that they will not prevail, that we will do whatever it takes to ensure a future for our economy and for our workers.
0: I don't see that you had any alternative. Now, there are op-ed writers, and we know the PMO has told us they're always available, um, but there are op-ed writers who've taken a run at you over this, but I don't see how Alberta had any alternative. And ultimately, as you say, it's a $30 billion investment for the good of this country when our economy starts to move forward again.
2: Yeah, and and, uh, Roy, since the federal government bought the Trans Mountain Expansion Project because of the legal and political uncertainty created by the same foreign-funded special interests, uh, Kinder Morgan, the uh, proponent of that project, uh, walked away. Uh, The federal government, uh, I I appreciate it, they stepped in to keep that project alive, but we are not going to bet the the, uh, the, the future of Alberta's economy on the prospect of that one project proceeding. Um, you know, one of the reasons we are so uniquely vulnerable to this uh, dumping, predatory dumping of oil on global markets by the Saudis and Russians right now is because we do not have global access. We are still, you know, we have the third largest oil reserves on Earth. Uh, we're, uh, the largest is Venezuela, then Saudi, then, then Alberta, then Canada, through Alberta. And uh, after that, Russia and so on. So. We, this, is a, this is an asset for, for which there is going to be significant global demand for decades to come, even as the world uh, moves to alternative forms of energy. We are talking here about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of wealth, hundreds of thousands of jobs, tens of billions of dollars of government revenue for health care and education. Uh, And a path for us in this part of the country to continue diversifying our economy, but it will not happen by accident. The investment that we made this week was an indication of Alberta taking control of our economic destiny. I'm a market guy. I'm not prone to government intervention, obviously, in in things like this by nature. But this, the, 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 the failure to get pipelines built out of Canada to generate hundreds of billions of dollars of value is not a market failure. It is a failure of politics. And so uh, I, I concluded that we need, if, if politics has, has, has killed and stunted pipelines, then we may need political engagement to get one built
0: okay premier one more question for you talk to us about the initiatives that you've undertaken as far as the pandemic is concerned and countering uh people who still oddly enough seem to believe that it's okay to go out and just have some fun
2: yeah you know i i can't believe anybody is still acting that way um and there's good and bad coming out of this crisis right on the uh, uh let me start with the bad we still we have We've seen examples of price gouging, of uh, fraud, uh, op- frauds, fraud operations targeting vulnerable seniors around the COVID crisis. We've seen uh, people ignoring the public health orders uh, to self-isolate and, and engage in social distancing. Uh, and all I can say to those folks who are either willfully uh, or uh, ignoring uh, the crisis who are engaging in behavior that could spread the disease, or worse yet, who are seeking to explo- exploit it, shame on them. But I think those irresponsible people are massively outweighed by the millions of points of light that we see, the remarkable um, response to, to, to everything as simple as delivering groceries for shut-in seniors next door, uh, to the outpouring of support for charities like food banks and, and homeless shelters, Uh, to the uh, private sector companies who are converting uh, their um, production facilities to produce personal protective equipment and and ventilators uh, uh, to 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 just so many random acts of kindness and compassion, I think we're really pulling together as Canadians. And so uh, I do want to reinforce, please, folks, if you can stay home, In every event, please follow the public health orders in your provinces. Um, uh, Wash your hands. Maintain those hygiene protocols. Be particularly uh, mindful of the elderly, the the frail, uh, and those who are sick. And together, we're going to get through this.
0: Canada's nurses are on the front lines of the front lines wherever they deliver health services to our country, whether it's in the hospitals, nursing homes, And other medical environments. So, what do our nurses need and how are they faring when you consider that um, the alarm was raised quite directly over the lack of personal protection equipment, PPE supplies? And we want to speak with uh, the president of the Canadian Nurses Association about this reality, what the reality is for Canada's nurses. Claire Bechter joins us, president of the uh, CNA, the Canadian Nurses Association. Claire, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. And let's start with this. How great is the need for PPE for nurses in Canada's medical environments today?
3: Thank you, uh, Roy. And thank you for having the Canadian Nurses Association on your show today. Uh, We uh, really appreciate the invitation. Um, I think we're just... uh, we think we're just getting into this uh, situation, and that that uh, need for personal protective equipment is only going to increase in the the near and probably medium-term uh, uh, future. So, we at the Canadian Nurses Association are very concerned, and certainly have been uh, working with all levels of government to, uh, first and foremost, to provide clear. Uh, consistent guidance uh, for uh, nurses and other healthcare providers. Um, and now, really, to expedite uh, the supply and the deployment of that supply across our country and across that vast geography that we have. Because, as you just said, nurses are uh, everywhere across our country, coast to coast to coast. There's actually uh, 430,000 more than 430,000 nurses across the country.
0: So it's encouraging to hear the prime minister to say that millions of masks are coming from China. But then, as you say, there's the logistical challenge of distributing them.
3: Yes, the logistical challenge of uh, distributing them. And I think that's going to require some uh, very strong effort on many people's uh, um, parts, uh, including the government, but also including uh, all of our partners in terms of transportation and, and others. You know, nurses have always been willing and ready to take care of the public, um, certainly in times of need and certainly in times of outbreaks. Um, And they really, really need to be able to make informed choices and they're capable of making those informed choices about their risk um, and their exposure. And part of that is having that equipment, those supplies at the ready. Yes. And so we're continuing to really keep our foot if you will to the pedal on the advocacy efforts in uh, in uh, expressing our concerns and the voices of uh, nurses in Canada.
0: And you have the support of the Canadian public. You know that nurses are held in such tremendously high regard and we see them uh, and the doctors and uh, all the people in the healthcare sector as being heroes now because they're standing up for Canadians in the most difficult and challenging of times we start to think about the 16 tons of ppe that was sent to china in february after the world health organization said that nations should be in fact be stockpiling or making sure they have enough but that's a discussion for another day let me ask you this you had a uh, you had a webinar did you not you had a uh, an exchange of um, uh, with your nurses and what did they tell you specifically what do they need what did you hear from canada's nurses
3: well, we had that webinar yesterday. Uh, thanks for that, uh, Roy. And there was, uh, I think, several hundred that attended the webinar. And uh, uh, personal protective equipment was certainly the top of their list. And, um, you know, for, for some of them, it's not been part of what they would do on a day-to-day basis, right? So when you think about um, infection prevention and control, it It takes many levels, so it includes things like screening. So many of them are out in in screening clinics where that may not have been what they've been doing before. They're actually screening as people are coming into hospitals and into facilities. And so there's um, what we heard is that there's a need not only for the equipment, not to take any um, importance away from that, but also for education, for guidance, for guidelines, for consistent guidelines. Um, in terms of how to use that uh, uh, equipment, to use that uh, protection, when to use it, how to use it, those kinds of things. Very practical kinds of questions and information about this.
0: I think uh, shout out as well to the retired nurses who are returning to the front lines of uh, of healthcare delivery, and we spoke last weekend with a nursing school graduate from McMaster University in Hamilton. She and others uh, across this country are pushing very hard so that they can get their certification and get into the uh, get into the battle against COVID nineteen.
3: Well, good, very good point and good question. So when that infection prevention and control and doesn't work, and nurses and others get sick, of course we know there's a shortage. Uh, we know there's a shortage already to begin with so yes uh, it was really heartening to hear about the call out to retired nurses and how quickly so many of them stepped up um, and uh, said i'll renew my license i'll come back to work and i will help out and that group of nursing students is another really important uh, group they're really wanting also to complete their education, many of them that would be in fourth year, looking at clinical placements and practicums and uh, really wanting to be part of uh, the workforce. But, you know, they're uncertain right now about those practicum placements um, and about uh, what opportunities might affect their graduation. But once they do meet those requirements, they need strong orientation, they need guidance and mentorship to make sure that they are able to enter safely into those uh, stress teams and are able to practice safely. So the Canadian Nurses Association is working closely with the Canadian Association of Schools of Nursing, the Canadian Nursing Students Association, and both of those organizations are well connected across Canada and looking for those solutions uh, together to make sure that those students can, can graduate and can get licensed and practice safely.
0: One more question for you, Claire. Are nurses in hospitals in this country right now today facing a rationing of personal protective equipment?
3: Well, you know, we've heard that. We've heard that from uh, nurses, and whether that's real or perceived that's um that's unfortunate, where um, really clinical decisions are being made not on evidence but on supply, right? So, and we have heard that and we're certainly encouraging uh, nurses to to speak up, uh, to ask questions um, and to advocate whether it be uh, on their own with their teams, but also with others like um, the Canadian Federation of Nursing Unions, but also with us at the Canadian Nurses Association. <laughs>
0: the mayor of the city of Vancouver the great city of Vancouver Kennedy Stewart joins us on the program on the specific challenges the pandemic is causing the city of Vancouver as it's causing cities and communities all over this country mr mayor thank you very much for taking the time
4: oh my pleasure thanks for having me
0: uh you must be proud of Vancouver residents and their responses to the pandemic we're starting to see some somewhat encouraging numbers so we're all looking for the for the for the marginal improvement we're starting to see that coming from british columbia
4: Well, I think, uh, you know, we were really, I think, first, we had some very early cases, which prompted our health minister, Adrian Dix, and and Dr. Bonnie Henry to take some very early measures to uh, flatten the curve, even before that was really a term. And uh, uh, yes, there are some encouraging signs, but we're uh, not even close to out of this yet. So we just have to keep doing what we're doing. But actually, very proud for Vancouverites. You know, they've for the most part, 95% have been uh, staying at home, distancing, washing hands, uh, and for those who weren't, we've been, uh, you know, we've been uh, taking other measures to make sure they comply.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, what the, uh, and I'll come back to the compliance issue in a moment, but you spoke at length yesterday about the needs of the city of Vancouver and particularly the downtown the uh, downtown east side of the of the city will you share with us please what the overview needs of the city are today as the pandemic progresses and what you decided and what you announced yesterday
4: sure so uh, really there's four areas of concern for us Uh, the first is the overall uh, effect on the city and uh, that's just trying to uh, keep up with the public health orders and make sure they're followed the second though is for our vulnerable population in the downtown east side Uh, there's you know around ten thousand people in the downtown east side, which is, uh, you know, uh, quite an impoverished uh, neighborhood filled with uh, many folks with uh, compromised immune systems. Uh, we do have uh, about 7,000 injection drug users here in the city. And so we, we've been very, very concerned, which uh, many folks would consider a city within a city. So Most of our attention has, uh, after we got general compliance across the city, was to focus resources into the downtown east side. Um, And so we have, so in, uh, if you've been to Vancouver, you know we have many uh, what we call SROs, uh, single-room occupancy hotels, which are uh, older hotels, which, you know, you wouldn't have a bathroom. You would share a bathroom on a floor, and we have... uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people in those hotels. So what we've been doing is sending in cleaning crews, uh, bringing in food. Uh, and one of the biggest concerns is uh, has been um, those folks who uh, are living with addiction. And we've started a new program here in the province called Safe Supply, where we're uh, getting people the uh, the prescribed drugs they need to, uh, to cope with, with their addiction so they can physically isolate and... That's been rolling out over the last few days, but it really has been an all-hands-on-deck effort from all agencies, and I'm just so grateful to everybody for uh, working on this uh, this very unique uh, situation and, and having some good success.
0: It's a completely different time and completely different rules, completely different approaches, and everybody has to get on board with. I you know you save one person, and you're going to save many, and uh, that's just the reality of this of this pandemic. Let me ask you this: How much political cooperation are you finding at the municipal level? Nationally, we're going to be starting the show tomorrow with Mayor Tory of Toronto, uh, and how much uh, cooperation are you getting provincially? And you have federal government experience. What about uh, what about Ottawa?
4: yeah i'll just start in our council really uh you know we declared a state of emergency uh, quite early uh, earlier than most uh and that was again unanimous within our council just because we were so concerned about uh, the the unique circumstances in the downtown east side so that that cooperation's been uh great uh as as with our staff and uh, agencies around the city uh, provincially I, I had a great talk with uh, john Horrigan yesterday who assured me that you know all the resources were available to to us to uh to take the actions we needed uh you know right up to the uh to deputy prime minister and i have uh, frequent uh, conversations whether verbally or or text or email just to keep uh, her and her team uh, apprised of what we need here uh, but really, the uh, the other levels of cooperation are between cities. So uh, you mentioned John Tory's on tomorrow. We have uh, big city mayor conference calls across the, across the country where we try to coordinate uh, the needs of our uh, Canadian cities. Uh, but also now around the world, we have a group of C40 mayors. So I'll be talking to the mayors of, like, say, Los Angeles and San Francisco, uh, Madrid, um, uh, Milan and Italy, London, New York. I mean, all uh, you know, all the mayors where we're, where we're kind of sharing where our best practices and concerns and, and trying to put forward a united voice as to the needs of cities. Because uh you know, one point of it, one part of it's uh, addressing the uh, the epidemic, the uh, the COVID-19 epidemic, but the other is the economic recovery. And if your cities collapse, because uh, we're all losing massive amounts of revenue and going through staff layoffs, uh, if they and some cities are already talking about going insolvent, um, then of course you can't issue the building permits, you can't uh, you you can't uh, do the things that all cities do to uh, to make the economy work. So that is a, a second area of concern is both our our local financial situation, but also how do we play a role in uh, making sure we uh, recover economically
0: and in so many cases uh, regardless of whether it's Canada or the United States or, or Europe we're really dealing with virgin territory we, we've never been here before we've never experienced something like this at least not our generations the generations of, uh, of you know the, the early 20th century experienced it with the so-called Spanish Flu but we've never been there so let me ask you this then, when it comes to you and you're proud of people in Vancouver, you're proud of whether the Vancouverites are responding but you also have rules, regulations and And there's the demand not the expectation of but demand for compliance how's that working out and if people just decide to disregard what are your options
4: well that was part of us declaring a a local state of emergency uh, very early on Uh, we were you know uh, the the, uh, the spring hit a little earlier here on the west coast and uh, so people were are used to uh, going out and enjoying the parks and you know playing sports and all those kind of things And, and it really took us I think about a week to make sure um, that, that folks are really paying attention. It, it was after one particular weekend where it was just, you know, probably the nicest weekend we'd had for months uh, where too many people were out. So we, we brought in a state of emergency as well as um, uh, ticketing, so $1,000 fines for individuals, and fifty thousand dollars for non-compliant businesses uh, happy to say we we've issued a whole bunch of warnings but no actual tickets uh... although we did remove uh, one business license from uh... from a business that was not complying so so that's what i mean i'm really proud of folks for for this level of voluntary compliance um... you know there'd be no way that we could uh, Ticket everybody, uh, and if, if we're not all in this together, uh, there's no way we'll we'll get through it. So, so that's uh, I think the the voluntary approach has been working, and in fact, I think it's really the only approach uh, that would work here in this city. Other cities might be different, but uh, but here, I don't see us going any further with uh, with more uh, strict enforcement.
0: One more question for you, Mary Stewart. What about your hospitals? how are how are the hospitals coping? How prepared are they for what we're told is coming in the next weeks. Um, particularly worried about the uh, the next week since I think in April for for many communities right around the world. Are you ready for it? Are you prepared for it? and uh, what's the situation with PPE in Vancouver?
4: right okay so uh, you know right from the beginning uh our health minister adrian dix uh has been calling me every day and we've had a kind of all uh, all cards on the table uh relationship and his uh minister dix's top priority has been to uh, clear space in the hospitals for the covid response that's been enormously successful we do have uh, a huge, uh, probably 35 to 40 percent of our hospital capacity is now open to uh, receive uh, COVID patients if they come in. Uh, so he really prepared for the worst-case scenario, and I have a lot of, uh, a lot of confidence that uh, we're we're at where we need to be with, uh, with with that approach. Uh, so uh, there is though uh, a problem with P- PPE, and we're we're finding that right across the country. Uh, but again, we've been working with. Uh, you know, local, local contacts, provincial and federal, uh, to try to do everything we can. And I, I understand that this, uh, where there's a shortage now, uh, within a couple of weeks, we'll have more than we need. Uh, but uh, it's these early, early days that are important. So we're really, uh, from my understanding, focusing the resources on, um, on. Uh, you know first responders and those who uh, need the most protection especially in hospitals so again i would say that uh that the toughest thing for us is the ppe at the moment but i i understand uh, the federal government that's their top priority and um you know we're, we're hoping it'll all work out shortly
0: with us on the program is Dr. Christian Luprecht, national and international security expert, Queen's University and Royal Military College, Monk Fellow in Security and Defense at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's regularly called on as an expert witness before the parliamentary committees. And one of his books is North American Strategic Defense in the 21st century. Christian, thank you very much for taking the time. And let's start with this issue about... So, the prime minister saying that if you arrive in this country, that you are mandated to quarantine for 14 days, essentially, or else. And you say what in response to that?
1: So let's look at a country that has been able to keep a very good control of the virus and it hasn't had to have massive shutdowns. Taiwan, which was expected to have um a relatively dire circumstances um, and that's because taiwan took very aggressive measures as early as mid-january uh, because it didn't trust what was coming out of china by contrasting can we've had sort of dribs and drabs and eventually the government came around and as we all know finally on march 24th issued an order in council Everybody who comes into the country needs to self-quarantine. By that time, about a million people had already returned to Canada, so they weren't under this uh, particular order. The challenges with that order is that what people get when they return 10 is simply a sheet of paper. There's no legally binding um, uh, affidavit or, or, uh, that, or undertaking that they need to sign uh, that would make them aware of what the requirements are and the implications of breaking those. It's simply, here's your sheet of paper, please go home and self-isolate. But the real challenge is that federal authorities are not sharing data with provincial authorities on the individuals that need to self-quarantine, and so that means that local health units and uh, and, and and, for instance, local law enforcement agencies that might be uh, that might be called upon by people who are concerned actually have no way of being able to lay charges. And, I mean, one way you can try to test this is how many people have actually gotten charged under the uh, Quarantine Act since March 24th. And the answer is zero. And that shows that uh, this is basically a a charade um, uh, trying to look like we're being tough on people coming into the country, but knowing full well that uh, unless uh, um, CBSA is um is is there with local authorities to be able to provide the actual data it would effectively be impossible to charge someone and so i think when we have laws and we have legislation in the country and we're going to invoke them um then we also need to be able to show that we actually have the teeth to charge people because otherwise we're just going to have people play uh, fast and loose with the rules
0: so what are you suggesting should be done what are the options that we have on the table right now
1: so the real challenge, of course, that the Emergency Measures Act, the Quarantine Act, uh, the Defense Production Act uh, were all written before the digital era. And so uh, we never thought through that we might have to, for instance, share data Uh, with provincial and local authorities, the federal government, to this sort of an extent. So Taiwan, for instance, has integrated, and they did this after SARS with the foresight that the next epidemic was coming. They integrated their national border database, their national identity card database, and their national health database. Of course, in Canada, we don't have a national identity card. We don't have a national health care database. And in addition to that, we need to have a conversation about the privacy legislation in place. And so that means Well, there's lots of people thinking that we need to get whatever cell phone tracking and whatnot on people. The the problems are really just much more fundamental. We actually need to figure out how in a situation such as this uh, we can and should uh, legally share data to ensure that um, we uh, uh, we have the common interest in place. But I think what needs to happen is that anybody who comes back into the country needs to sign a legal undertaking that explains to them, here's your requirements. Here are the implications if you uh, if you violate those requirements. and they're serious, fines are $750,000, six months in jail. Uh, if you infect someone or possibly someone dies, that's a $1 million and up to three years in jail. I think if you put that on a sheet of paper and you make people sign that and you tell them, if you break quarantine before 14 days, we will charge you, um, then we're not going to have reports of people who kind of play a little fast and loose with the rules and kind of stop at their grocery store on the way home or whatnot.
0: What do you think the chances are? that this government would do anything like that? Zero?
1: So the government, I think, is uh, is very concerned about violating the mobility protections in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I think the government is also concerned about, and to some extent perhaps rightly, about having this type of conversation in the midst of a crisis. Um, and so really I think what we need to do is have a bit of foresight and learn from other countries, such as Taiwan, such as South Korea, about how we're going to prepare for the next epidemic, because we all know the next epidemic is coming. We all know that the wet markets that brought us this virus have not been shut down by the Chinese government, that the Chinese government is complicit, and for instance, the trade of pangolins and all sorts of other animals uh, that people end up eating. And so we know the next epidemic is coming. So this is why as soon as this is over, we need to have a national conversation about the conditions under which perhaps uh, we may be able to violate the private privacy act uh, when emergency measures are invoked in order to be able to engage in this, type of, uh, um, in, in, in this type of data sharing. What are the chances that the government is going to act? Well, look, I think we're at the point now where the 30-minute uh, press conference by the prime minister is becoming more of a PR effort uh, than, uh, than it is, I think, actually a a genuine effort to communicate with Canadians. Most other leaders have made a point of, uh, of perhaps the German Chancellor, for instance, who has held um, one very explicit uh, address to the nation, um, and uh, leaves it up to her ministers to uh, uh, to run this particular show. And so intervenes when things get tough and somebody needs to make a really tough decision. Okay. Uh, but uh, I think we we basically. Uh, at this point, unless uh, unless we see a second wave that can, the media can show is directly attributed to travel, I'm not sure that the government is going to be convinced to, to be able to do. Um, uh, a whole lot more, given that the story out of Ottawa seems to be changing every couple of days.
0: Share with us your thoughts on the issue of uh, energy. I'm going to be speaking with the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, at the top of the next hour. They just invested seven and a half, or will, will invest seven and a half billion dollars in Keystone XL. And my point, point after that was, great idea, go ahead and do it, because we're going to need our oil industry to help us get back on our feet economically. Because the GDP percentage is huge, the world is going to need oil, and the price will not stay where it is now. So how do you see the issue of, and in the email you sent me, the opening sentence, Christian, was, the energy pain will be here for a long time to come. Speak to that, please.
1: Yeah, we need to think about as Canadians whether we're going to impoverish ourselves by 20%. I mean, we're a democratic country. We can make that choice. We could put it on a referendum um, and just simply say, well, we'll let the oil industry go to hell in the handbasket. Um, but that's a serious economic decision for Canada to make, given how much of our GDP hinges on oil and gas exports. So, I mean, gas exports are projected to double uh, over the next uh, thirty or so uh, or so years, and so we need to think about if we 're going to have countries authoritarian countries like uh, like Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia try to run our oil industry um, out of town in North America, what is it that we can do to actually defend um, our interests and so I think one of the interesting deba- debates about this is To what extent uh, do we actually want to, to some extent, curtail some elements of globalization and, for instance, have a tariff wall around North America where we're simply not going to have uh, Russia and, uh, uh, and Saudi Arabia engage in mass dumping of oil onto our markets? For their own benefit but we effectively protect our own industry by saying that we're going to buy our own industry's oil and we're going to make sure we also have the infrastructure to be able to ship that oil um, and uh, uh, at the same time i guess find some sort of a sensible conversation about how we transition uh, out of oil but all the people who think we can sort of turn off the oil jobs and sort of simply go green tomorrow um, i think have a very unrealistic understanding about both how our economy works Um, and how our uh, prosperity in this country works. But I think this is a great opportunity to show that. And this is, I think, what uh, Premier Kenney has in mind when he says he's looking to talk to the Trump administration because we need a coordinated North American approach uh, to how we're going to get a handle on on this challenge in order to defend uh, the interests um, and prosperity of all of North America
0: so uh Christian when I read your email and this is one that's been uh, sort of, it's been irritating many of us we have many questions about this and you call it a strategic blunder explain to us what it is and what this strategic blunder is
1: on February 9th the government announced that it was sending 16 tons of um, medical equipment uh, personal protective equipment to China. I mean, this has been widely reported. There's some 200,000 gloves in there. There's 50,000 face masks, all the things that are currently in in short supply. And my view is that at the time, the government would have already seen that the virus is spreading and that some of our allies might be in trouble. And yet what the government decided is to send uh, those masks and to prop up an authoritarian regime rather than keep the few stockpiles that we have in reserves not even necessarily to use them in Canada, but to be able to support our key allies. And so this, of course, is a time when Canada is criticized, especially by the U.S. administration, for not spending enough on defense, for not doing enough militarily. Here would have been a nice way to demonstrate that when times get tough, Canada is there to show solidarity um, in terms of board- burden sharing and uh, being able to provide. So when recently requests were made, for instance, by Italy, by Spain, Uh, by Montenegro, by the newest NATO member, North Macedonia. Guess what country stepped up? The Czech Republic stepped up, Turkey stepped up, but Canada had nothing to offer. And so the irony, of course, in this is that Italy is now taking um, donations from China that we now know are inferior in quality, but the Chinese have been able to exploit this as a propaganda campaign about how they're being the false messiah for the world now in terms of saving them for the virus, where well, we as Canada and as Canadians could have been there uh, to support an ally and at the same time try not to provide that sort of vulnerability and opening uh, to be exploited by, uh, by Chinese propaganda.
0: And we may not have nearly as many issues with Canadian frontline healthcare heroes battling for very scarce now personal protective equipment. We just heard in the last half hour, and this is really disturbing to me, a paramedic from British Columbia telling us he's waiting for the test results for COVID-19 infection today. And he was told, and as were his fellow paramedics, when you go on a call, assess visually whether or not you should be wearing PPE and remember it's scarce. Just wrong from every every possible perspective.
1: Yeah, I think the problem is in this country, and unfortunately many of our allies have the same challenge, we're still very much in a Cold War mentality. So we have stockpiles of oil and we have stockpiles of food. So this for instance, partially why our grocery stores were fairly well equipped to handle this particular crisis, because this is something that we play through with grocery store suppliers. But we don't have large stockpiles of medical equipment to be able to face this type of uh, pandemic, let alone the shutdown of international international supply routes. And so this is, I think, where the irony is that we've been modeling this for 20 years. So it's not like this came as a big surprise. um, If uh, the sort of exercises that the government runs, the governments of the day would actually be paying, uh, paying attention to. And so I think it is tragic. Because people on the front lines do not need to get infected, they not, do not need to die, at least they do not need to get infected and die because we don't have enough equipment. This was entirely foreseeable, and it was simply, unfortunately, people not taking seriously um, what individuals such as Bill Gates, of course, uh, who's been heavily involved in the, in the pandemic uh, research and planning for many years, uh, have caution about. And so I think we need to realize that in a globalized world, we simply do need to be better prepared. And especially as Canadians, I think we never take the warnings about national security seriously, because we always think that our allies are going to be there for us, and the Americans are going to be there for us. And as we now learn the hard way, even the Americans aren't always going to be there for us when the going gets really tough. And so we need to do a much better job um, at preparing for the global challenges um, of security that include pandemics.
0: We have literally about thirty seconds left, but please, your thoughts on what's going on on the Ontario Quebec border?
1: Yeah, this is pretty impressive. It shows, I think, the the, the strains under which we are as a society, uh, and that we need to learn um, if we're going to slow down traffic at in the Ontario Quebec and the New Brunswick Nova Scotia border. Uh, this is a sign that we need much better advanced warning and planning in terms of future challenges and future epidemics and where we need to work with countries such as Taiwan that did the right thing by middle of January rather than trying to rely on a World Health Organization that has been captured institutionally by China and is continuing to spread misinformation as well. Thank you for listening to today's
0: podcast. If you want to hear more subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever